Section 11 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 of The Vessels of Animal Bodies, Part 2. 1. For this necessary part of the animal economy, an apparatus is provided, in a great measure, capable of being what anatomists call demonstrated, that is, shown in the dead body, and a line or course of conveyance which we can pursue by our examinations. First, the food descends by wide passages into the intestines, undergoing two great preparations on its way, one in the mouth by mastication and moisture, can it be doubted with what design the teeth were placed in the road to the stomach, or that there was choice in fixing them in this situation? The other by digestion in the stomach itself. Of this last surprising dissolution I say nothing, because it is chemistry, and I am endeavoring to display mechanism. The figure and position of the stomach, I speak all along with a reference to the human organ, are calculated for detaining the food long enough for the action of its digestive juice. It has the shape of the pouch of a bagpipe, lies across the body, and the pylorus, or passage by which the food leaves it, is somewhat higher in the body than the cardia, or orifice by which it enters, so that it is by the contraction of the muscular coat of the stomach that the contents, after having undergone the application of the gastric menstruum, are gradually pressed out. In dogs and cats, this action of the coats of the stomach has been displayed to the eye, it is a slow and gentle undulation, propagated from one orifice of the stomach to the other. For the same reason that I omitted, for the present, offering any observation upon the digestive fluid, I shall say nothing concerning the bile or the pancreatic juice, further than to observe upon the mechanism, viz., that from the glands in which these secretions are elaborated, pipes are laid into the first of the intestines, through which pipes the product of each gland flows into that bowel, and is there mixed with the aliment as soon almost as it passes the stomach. Adding also, as a remark, how grievously this same bile offends the stomach itself, yet cherishes the vessel that lies next to it. Secondly, we have now the aliment in the intestines, converted into pulp, and, though lately consisting of perhaps ten different viands, reduced to nearly an uniform substance, and to a state fitted for yielding its essence, which is called chyle, but which is milk, or more nearly resembling milk than any other liquor with which it can be compared. For the straining off of this fluid from the digested aliment in the course of its long progress through the body, myriads of capillary tubes, i.e. pipes as small as hairs, open their orifices into the cavity of every part of the intestines. These tubes, which are so fine and slender as not to be visible, unless when distended with chyle, soon unite into larger branches. The pipes formed by this union terminate in glands from which other pipes of a still larger diameter arising carry the chyle from all parts into a common reservoir or receptacle. This receptacle is a bag, large enough to hold about two tablespoonfuls, and from this vessel a duct or main pipe proceeds, climbing up the back part of the chest and then creeping along the gullet till it reaches the neck. Here it meets the river. Here it discharges itself into a large vein which soon conveys the chyle, now flowing along with the old blood, to the heart. This whole root can be exhibited to the eye. Nothing is left to be supplied by imagination or conjecture. Now, beside the subserviency of this whole structure to a manifest and necessary purpose, we may remark two or three separate particulars in it, which show not only the contrivance, but the perfection of it. 
we may remark first the length of the intestines which in the human subject is six times that of the body simply for a passage these voluminous bowels this prolixity of gut seems in no wise necessary but in order to allow time and space for the successive extraction of the chyle from the digested aliment namely that the chyle which escapes the lacteals of one part of the guts may be taken up by those of some other part the length of the canal is of evident use and conduciveness secondly we must also remark their peristaltic motion which is made up of contractions following one another like waves upon the surface of a fluid and not unlike what we observe in the body of an earthworm crawling along the ground and which is effected by the joint action of longitudinal and of spiral or rather perhaps of a great number of separate semicircular fibers this curious action pushes forward the grosser part of the aliment at the same time that the more subtle parts which we call chyle are by a series of gentle compressions squeezed into the narrow orifices of the lacteal veins thirdly it was necessary that these tubes which we denominate lacteals or their mouths at least should be made as narrow as possible in order to deny admission into the blood to any particle which is of size enough to make a lodgment afterwards in the small arteries and thereby to obstruct the circulation and it was also necessary that this extreme tenuity should be compensated by multitude for a large quantity of chyle in ordinary constitutions not less it has been computed than two or three quarts a day is by some means or other to be passed through them accordingly we find the number of the lacteals exceeding all powers of computation and their pipes so fine and slender as not to be visible unless filled to the naked eye and their orifices which open into the intestines so small as not to be discernible even by the best microscope fourthly the main pipe which carries the chyle from the reservoir to the blood viz the thoracic duct being fixed in an almost upright position and wanting that advantage of propulsion which the arteries possess is furnished with a succession of valves to check the ascending fluid when once it has passed them from falling back these valves look upwards so as to leave the ascent free but to prevent the return of the chyle if for want of sufficient force to push it on its weight should at any time cause it to descend fifthly the chyle enters the blood in an odd place but perhaps the most commodious place possible viz at a large vein in the neck so situated with respect to the circulation as speedily to bring the mixture to the heart and this seems to be a circumstance of great moment for had the chyle entered the blood at an artery or at a distant vein the fluid composed of the old and new materials must have performed a considerable part of the circulation before it received that churning in the lungs which is probably necessary for the intimate and perfect union of the old blood with the recent chyle who could have dreamt of a communication between the cavity of the intestines and the left great vein of the neck who could have suspected that this communication should be the medium through which all nourishment is derived to the body or this the place where by a side inlet the important junction is formed between the blood and the material which feeds it we postpone the consideration of digestion lest it should interrupt us in tracing the course of the food to the blood but in treating of the alimentary system so principal a part of the process cannot be omitted of the gastric juice the immediate agent by which that change which food undergoes in our stomachs is effected we shall take our account from the numerous careful and varied experiments of the abbe spallanzani one it is not a simple diluent but a real solvent a quarter of an ounce of beef had scarce touched the stomach of a crow when the solution began 
2. It has not the nature of saliva, it has not the nature of bile, but is distinct from both. By experiments out of the body, it appears that neither of these secretions acts upon alimentary substances in the same manner as the gastric juice acts. 3. Digestion is not putrefaction, for it resists putrefaction most pertinaciously, nay, not only checks its further progress, but restores putrid substances. 4. It is not a fermentative process, for the solution begins at the surface and proceeds towards the center, contrary to the order in which fermentation acts and spreads. 5. It is not the digestion of heat, for the cold maw of a cod or sturgeon will dissolve the shells of crabs and lobsters harder than the sides of the stomach which contains them. In a word, animal digestion carries about it the marks of being a power and a process completely sui generis, distinct from every other, at least from every chemical process with which we are acquainted. And the most wonderful thing about it is its appropriation, its subserviency to the particular economy of each animal. The gastric juice of an owl, falcon, or kite will not touch grain. No, not even to finish the macerated and half-digested pulse which is left in the crops of the sparrows that the bird devours. In poultry, the trituration of the gizzard and the gastric juice conspire in the work of digestion. The gastric juice will not dissolve the grain whilst it is whole. Grains of barley enclosed in tubes or spherules are not affected by it. But if the same grain be by any means broken or ground, the gastric juice immediately lays hold of it. Here then is wanted, and here we find, a combination of mechanism and chemistry. For the preparatory grinding, the gizzard lends its mill. And as all mill work should be strong, its structure is so, beyond that of any other muscle belonging to the animal. The internal coat also, or lining, of the gizzard is, for the same purpose, hard and cartilaginous. But, forasmuch as this is not the sort of animal substance suited for the reception of glands, or for secretion, the gastric juice in this family is not supplied, as in membranous stomachs, by the stomach itself, but by the gullet, in which the feeding glands are placed, and from which it trickles down into the stomach. In sheep, the gastric fluid has no effect in digesting plants unless they have been previously masticated. It only produces a slight maceration, nearly such as common water would produce, in a degree of heat somewhat exceeding the medium temperature of the atmosphere. But provided that the plant has been reduced to pieces by chewing, the gastric juice then proceeds with it, first by softening its substance, next by destroying its natural consistency, and lastly by dissolving it so completely as not even to spare the toughest and most stringy parts, such as the nerves of the leaves. So far our accurate and indefatigable Abbe. Dr. Stevens of Edinburgh, in 1777, found by experiments tried with perforated balls, that the gastric juice of the sheep and the ox speedily dissolved vegetables, but made no impression upon beef, mutton, and other animal bodies. Dr. Hunter discovered a property of this fluid of a most curious kind, viz. that in the stomachs of animals which feed upon flesh, irresistibly as this fluid acts upon animal substances, it is only upon the dead substance that it operates at all. The living fiber suffers no injury from lying in contact with it. Worms and insects are found alive in the stomachs of such animals. The coats of the human stomach, in a healthy state, are insensible to its presence, yet in cases of sudden death, wherein the gastric juice, not having been weakened by disease, retains its activity, it has been known to eat a hole through the bowel which contains it. How nice is this discrimination of action, yet how necessary! 
but to return to our hydraulics. 3. The gallbladder is a very remarkable contrivance. It is the reservoir of a canal. It does not form the channel itself, i.e. the direct communication between the liver and the intestine, which is by another passage, viz. the ductus hepaticus, continued under the name of the ductus communis, but it lies adjacent to this channel, joining it by a duct of its own, the ductus cysticus, by which structure it is enabled, as occasions may require, to add its contents to, and increase, the flow of bile into the duodenum. And the position of the gallbladder is such as to apply this structure to the best advantage. In its natural situation, it touches the exterior surface of the stomach, and consequently is compressed by the distension of that vessel, the effect of which compression is to force out from the bag and send into the duodenum an extraordinary quantity of bile to meet the extraordinary demand which the repletion of the stomach by food is about to occasion. Chesselden describes the gallbladder as seated against the duodenum and thereby liable to have its fluid pressed out by the passage of the aliment through that cavity, which likewise will have the effect of causing it to be received into the intestine at a right time and in a due proportion. There may be other purposes answered by this contrivance, and it is probable that there are. The contents of the gallbladder are not exactly of the same kind as what passes from the liver through the direct passage. It is possible that the gall may be changed, and for some purposes meliorated, by keeping. The entrance of the gall duct into the duodenum furnishes another observation. Whenever either smaller tubes are inserted into larger tubes, or tubes into vessels and cavities, such receiving tubes, vessels, or cavities, being subject to muscular constriction, we always find a contrivance to prevent regurgitation. In some cases valves are used, in other cases, amongst which is that now before us, a different expedient is resorted to, which may be thus described. The gall duct enters the duodenum obliquely. After it has pierced the first coat, it runs near two fingers' breadth between the coats before it opens into the cavity of the intestine. The same contrivance is used in another part, where there is exactly the same occasion for it, viz. in the insertion of the ureters into the bladder. These enter the bladder near its neck, running obliquely for the space of an inch between its coats. It is, in both cases, sufficiently evident that this structure has a necessary mechanical tendency to resist regurgitation. For whatever force acts in such a direction as to urge the fluid back into the orifices of the tubes must, at the same time, stretch the coats of the vessels, and thereby compress that part of the tube which is included between them. 4. Amongst the vessels of the human body, the pipe which conveys the saliva from the place where it is made to the place where it is wanted, deserves to be reckoned amongst the most intelligible pieces of mechanism with which we are acquainted. The saliva, we all know, is used in the mouth, but much of it is manufactured on the outside of the cheek by the parotid gland which lies between the ear and the angle of the lower jaw. In order to carry the secreted juice to its destination, there is laid from the gland on the outside a pipe about the thickness of a wheat straw and about three fingers' breadth in length, which, after riding over the masseter muscle, bores for itself a hole through the very middle of the cheek, enters by that hole, which is a complete perforation of the buccinator muscle, into the mouth, and there discharges its fluid very copiously. 5. Another exquisite structure, differing indeed from the four preceding instances, in that it does not relate to the conveyance of fluids, but still belonging, like these, to the class of pipes or conduits of the body, is seen in the larynx. 
we all know that there go down the throat two pipes, one leading to the stomach, the other to the lungs, the one being the passage for the food, the other for the breath and voice. We know also that both these passages open into the bottom of the mouth, the gullet necessarily for the conveyance of food, and the windpipe for speech and the modulation of sound not much less so. Therefore the difficulty was, the passages being so contiguous, to prevent the food, especially the liquids, which we swallow into the stomach, from entering the windpipe, i.e. the road to the lungs, the consequence of which error, when it does happen, is perceived by the convulsive throes that are instantly produced. This business, which is very nice, is managed in this manner. The gullet, the passage for food, opens into the mouth like the cone or upper part of a funnel, the capacity of which forms indeed the bottom of the mouth. Into the side of this funnel, at the part which lies the lowest, enters the windpipe by a chink or slit, with a lid or flap like a little tongue accurately fitted to the orifice. The solids or liquids which we swallow pass over this lid or flap as they descend by the funnel into the gullet. Both the weight of the food and the action of the muscles concerned in swallowing contribute to keep the lid close down upon the aperture whilst anything is passing, whereas by means of its natural cartilaginous spring it raises itself a little as soon as the food is passed, thereby allowing a free inlet and outlet for the respiration of air by the lungs. Such is its structure, and we may here remark the almost complete success of the expedient, viz. how seldom it fails of its purpose compared with the number of instances in which it fulfills it. Reflect how frequently we swallow, how constantly we breathe. In a city feast, for example, what deglutition, what annihilation! Yet does this little cartilage, the epiglottis, so effectually interpose its office, so securely guard the entrance of the windpipe, that, whilst morsel after morsel, draught after draught, are coursing one another over it, an accident of a crumb or a drop slipping into this passage, which nevertheless must be open for the breath every second of time, excites in the whole company not only alarm by its danger, but surprise by its novelty. Not two guests are choked in a century. There is no room for pretending that the action of the parts may have gradually formed the epiglottis. I do not mean in the same individual, but in a succession of generations. Not only the action of the parts has no such tendency, but the animal could not live, nor consequently the parts act, either without it or with it, in a half-formed state. The species was not to wait for the gradual formation or expansion of a part, which was, from the first, necessary to the life of the individual. Not only is the larynx curious, but the whole windpipe possesses a structure adapted to its peculiar office. It is made up, as any one may perceive by putting his fingers to his throat, of stout cartilaginous ringlets placed at small and equal distances from one another. Now this is not the case with any other of the numerous conduits of the body. The use of these cartilages is to keep the passage for the air constantly open, which they do mechanically. A pipe with soft membranous coats, liable to collapse and close when empty, would not have answered here, although this be the general vascular structure which serves very well for those tubes which are kept in a state of perpetual distension by the fluid they enclose, afford a passage to solid and protruding substances. Nevertheless, which is another particularity well worthy of notice, these rings are not complete, that is, are not cartilaginous and stiff all round, but their hinder part, which is contiguous to the gullet, is membranous and soft, easily yielding to the distensions of that organ occasioned by the descent of solid food. The same rings are also beveled off at the upper and lower edges, 
the better to close upon one another when the trachea is compressed or shortened. The constitution of the trachea may suggest likewise another reflection. The membrane which lines its inside is perhaps the most sensible, irritable membrane of the body. It rejects the touch of a crumb of bread or a drop of water with a spasm which convulses the whole frame. Yet, left to itself and its proper office, the intromission of air alone, nothing can be so quiet. It does not even make itself felt. A man does not know that he has a trachea. This capacity of perceiving with such acuteness, this impatience of offense, yet perfect rest and ease when let alone, are properties one would have thought not likely to reside in the same subject. It is to the junction, however, of these almost inconsistent qualities, in this as well as in some other delicate parts of the body, that we owe our safety and our comfort, our safety to their sensibility, our comfort to their repose. The larynx, or rather the whole windpipe taken together, for the larynx is only the upper part of the windpipe, besides its other uses, is also a musical instrument, that is to say, it is mechanism expressly adapted to the modulation of sound for it has been found upon trial that, by relaxing or tightening the tendinous bands at the extremity of the windpipe, and blowing in at the other end, all the cries and notes might be produced of which the living animal was capable. It can be sounded just as a pipe or flute is sounded. Birds, says Bonnet, have at the lower end of the windpipe a conformation like the reed of a hoboy, for the modulation of their notes. A tuneful bird is a ventriloquist. The seat of the song is in the breast. The use of the lungs in the system has been said to be obscure. One use, however, is plain, though in some sense external to the system, and that is the formation in conjunction with the larynx of voice and speech. They are to animal utterance what the bellows are to the organ. For the sake of method, we have considered animal bodies under three divisions, their bones, their muscles, and their vessels, and we have stated our observations upon these parts separately. But this is to diminish the strength of the argument. The wisdom of the Creator is seen not in their separate but their collective action, in their mutual subserviency and dependence, in their contributing together to one effect and one use. It has been said that a man cannot lift his hand to his head without finding enough to convince him of the existence of a God. And it is well said, for he has only to reflect, familiar as this action is, and simple as it seems to be, how many things are requisite for the performing of it how many things which we understand, to say nothing of many more probably which we do not, viz. first, a long, hard, strong cylinder, in order to give to the arm its firmness and tension, but which, being rigid, and in its substance inflexible, can only turn upon joints. Secondly, therefore, joints for this purpose, one at the shoulder to raise the arm, another at the elbow to bend it, these joints continually fed with a soft mucilage to make the parts slip easily upon one another, and held together by strong braces to keep them in their position. Then, thirdly, strings and wires, i.e. muscles and tendons, artificially inserted for the purpose of drawing the bones in the directions in which the joints allow them to move. Hitherto we seem to understand the mechanism pretty well, and understanding this, we possess enough for our conclusion. Nevertheless, we have hitherto only a machine standing still, a dead organization, an apparatus. To put the system in a state of activity, to set it at work, a further provision is necessary, viz. a communication with the brain by means of nerves. We know the existence of this communication, because we can see the communicating threads, 
and can trace them to the brain. Its necessity we also know, because if the thread be cut, if the communication be intercepted, the muscle becomes paralytic. But beyond this we know little, the organization being too minute and subtle for our inspection. To what has been enumerated, as officiating in the single act of a man's raising his hand to his head, must be added likewise all that is necessary and all that contributes to the growth, nourishment, and sustentation of the limb, the repair of its waste, the preservation of its health, such as the circulation of the blood through every part of it, its lymphatics, exhalants, absorbance, its excretions and integuments. All these share in the result, join in the effect, and how all these, or any of them, come together, without a designing, disposing intelligence, it is impossible to conceive. End of section 11